Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash boy you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from A Century's Progress in Astronomy Written by Hector McPherson and published in 1906. This book looks at the life of William Herschel, a pioneer in the field of astronomy. It's amazing to think how far we've come in this area of research, and also how much there is that we still do not know. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere Get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thanks to everyone who continues to listen to and support the show. Special shout out to iTunes listener, Sleepy Divyanshi, who left a review from India. I'm extremely grateful for your reviews and comments, and glad that I've been able to help you get a good night's rest. Thank you to everyone who continues to support the show on Anchor or Patreon. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. A Century's Progress in Astronomy Chapter 1 
Herschel the Pioneer. In astronomy, as in other sciences, the past hundred years has been a period of unparalleled progress. New methods have been devised, fresh discoveries have been made, new theories have been propounded, the field of work has widened enormously. In fact, the science of the heavens has become not only boundless in its possibilities, but more awe-inspiring and marvellous. To whom is this great advance due? To the great pioneer of what may be called modern astronomy, William Herschel. Not only did Herschel reconstruct the science and widen its bounds, but his powerful genius directed the course of 19th century research. As an astronomical observer, he has never been surpassed. In the breadth of his views, he was equalled only by Newton, and indeed he excelled Newton in his unwearied observations and his sweeping conceptions of the universe. To quote his own remark to the poet Campbell, he looked farther into space than every human being did before him. Herschel studied astronomy in all its aspects. In all the branches of modern astronomy, he was a pioneer. He observed the sun, moon and planets, devoting special attention to Mars and Saturn. He doubled the diameter of the solar system by the discovery of Uranus. He discovered several satellites and studied comets. He was preeminently the founder of sidereal astronomy. He discovered binary stars, thus tracing the law of gravitation in the distant star depths, while to him is due the credit of the discovery of the motion of the solar system. He founded the study of star clusters and nebulae, propounded the nebula hypothesis, and devised two methods of star gouging. Above all, he was the first to attempt the solution of one of the noblest problems ever attacked by man, the structure of the universe. In fact, the latter problem was the end and aim of his observations. As Miss Clark remarks, the magnificence of the idea, which was rooted in his mind from the start, places him apart from all and above all preceding observers. Most of the departments of modern astronomy find a meeting place in Herschel, as the branches run to the root of the tree. He discussed astronomy from every point of view, before, however, proceeding to examine the work of this great man. It is well to note a few of his characteristics. These characteristics, once understood, give us the key to his researches. 
Before we can master Herschel, the astronomer must understand Herschel, the man. Notwithstanding the fact that Herschel spent most of his life in England, and that he is included in the Dictionary of National Biography, he was preeminently a German. Like most Germans, his style of writing was somewhat obscure, and this was emphasised when he wrote in English, owing to his imperfect command of the language. Had he written in German as well as English, he would probably have been better understood in his native country, where erroneous views of his theories were long entertained. Even so, he distinguished an astronomer as Wilhelm Struve when translating Herschel's papers into German, made a mistake when translating a certain passage, which leaves the erroneous impression that Herschel believed the universe to be infinite, a mistake which would not have arisen had he written in German. The student of Herschel should also be careful in quoting the views of the great astronomer. Had Herschel, at the close of his life, written a volume containing his final views on the construction of the heavens, this would not have been necessary, but Herschel did not write such a volume. His researches were embodied in a series of papers communicated to the Royal Society from 1780 to 1818. As he observed the heavens, his opinions progressed, so that a statement of his views at any given time was by no means a statement of his final opinions. The late R. A. Proctor, who was the first great exponent of Herschel in England, has well said, It seems to have been supposed that his papers could only be treated as we might treat such a work as Sir J. Herschel's Outlines of Astronomy, that extracts might be made from any part of any paper without reference to the position which the paper chanced to occupy in the entire series. Herschel, like the true student of nature, held theories very lightly. They were to him but roads to the truth. Unlike many scientists, he did not interpret observations by hypothesis. He framed his theories to fit his observations. If he found that a certain theory did not agree with what he actually saw in the heavens, he abandoned it. He did not hesitate to change his views as his investigations proceeded. No fear of committing himself, says Mrs. Clark, in her admirable work on the Herschels deterred him from imparting the thoughts that accompanied his multitudinous observations. 
he felt committed to nothing but truth. In the mind of Herschel, imagination and observation were marvellously blended. He was a philosophical astronomer, although his imagination was a very vivid one. He did not allow his fancies to run away with him, as Kepler sometimes did. On the other hand, he did not, like Flamsteed, refrain from speculating altogether. We ought, he wrote in 1785, to avoid two opposite extremes. If we indulge a fanciful imagination and build worlds of our own, we must not wonder at our going wide from the path of truth and nature. On the other hand, if we add observation to observation without attempting to draw not only certain conclusions but also conjectural views from them, we offend against the very end for which only observations ought to be made. These characteristics, the lightness with which he held his theories, his vivid imagination, and his philosophical reasoning, are the secrets of Herschel's success as an astronomer. Nearly all of his ideas and speculations have been confirmed. As Arago has said, we cannot but feel a deep reverence for that powerful genius that has scarcely ever erred. Herschel, like all other great students of nature, was deeply religious. He could not observe the heavens without feeling awed at the marvels which his telescopes revealed. In his own words, it is surely a very laudable thing to receive instruction from the great workmaster of nature. Friedrich Wilhelm Herschel, born in Hanover on November 15, 1738, was the fourth child of Isaac Herschel, an oboist in the band of the Hanoverian Guard. Isaac Herschel, a native of Dresden, was an accomplished musician, and all his children, ten in number, inherited his talent. Of these ten, six survived, and only two became famous. These were William, the great astronomer, and his sister Caroline, born on March 16, 1750, who became a student of the heavens, only second to her brother. At the garrison school in Hanover, where the Herschels were educated, William Herschel showed intense love and aptitude for learning and was more diligent and persevering than his brother Jacob, his senior by four years. In 1753, he became an oboist in the band of the Hanoverian Guard, in which his father was now bandmaster. 
In her valuable memoirs, his sister relates that her father was very interested in astronomy and that he taught his children the names of the constellations. William became devoted to the science and constructed a small celestial globe on which equator and ecliptic were engraved. But his studies were much hampered. His mother had a great dislike to learning. She had no sympathy with aspirations and tried to prevent her children from becoming well-educated. Above all, the Hanoverian Guard was ordered to England in 1755 when a French invasion was feared and to that country Herschel proceeded along with his father and brother. Returning to Germany in 1756, the Hanoverian Guard was employed the following year in the Seven Years' War. Hanover was invaded by the French, and conscription being the rule, the musicians were not exempted from service. Under the command of the Duke of Cumberland, the guard suffered a terrible defeat at Hastenbeck. William Herschel spent the night after the battle in a ditch and decided that soldiering would not be his profession. He deserted and with the consent of his parents, he sailed for England. After his arrival at Dover, he wandered through the country in search of musical employment. At length, in 1760, he was appointed to train the band of the German militia, and four years later, paid a secret visit to Hanover, where he was welcomed by his father, whose health was now failing, and by his sister Caroline. In the following year, he was promoted to the post of organist at Halifax, and in 1766, he removed to Bath as oboist in Lindley's Orchestra. Finally, in 1767, he became organist in the New Octagon Chapel at Bath. Herschel was now 29 years old, and known as a famous musician. As Miss Clark's remarks, the Octagon Chapel soon became a centre of fashionable attraction, and he soon found himself lifted on the wave of public favour. Pupils of high rank thronged to him, and his lessons often mounted to 35 a week. In the year of his appointment, his father died, aged 60, after a life of trouble and hardship. His death was a great blow to his daughter Caroline, whom he had educated when her mother was from home. Caroline Herschel was naturally possessed of musical ability, but her mother and older brother had determined that she should be a housemaid a determination which William, 
who was devotedly attached to his sister, opposed. Finally, in 1772, he visited Hanover and took his sister to England with him to act as his housekeeper. But for her unwearied devotion, it is doubtful whether William Herschel would have become the great astronomer. About the time of his appointment in Bath, Herschel commenced the study of languages and mathematics, reading Maclaurin's Fluxions and Ferguson's Astronomy. The perusal of the latter volume revived his love for astronomy. After 14 or 16 hours teaching, he would retire to his bedroom and read of the wonders of the heavens. His interest increased as he proceeded, until, in his own words, I resolved to take nothing upon trust, but to see with my own eyes all that other men had seen before me. Accordingly, he hired a small reflector, inquiring the price of a larger instrument. He found it to be quite beyond his means. Then, in 1772, when his sister came to keep his house for him, he resolved to make his own telescope. First, he tried the fitting of lenses into pasteboard tubes, but this being a total failure, he bought the apparatus of a Quaker optician who had constructed or attempted to construct reflecting telescopes. In June 1773, assisted by his sister and by his brother Alexander, then in Bath, he commenced work. His first specular mirror was five inches in diameter, and while it was in process of construction, he was obliged to hold his hands on it for 16 hours at a stretch, while his sister supplied his food and read the Arabian Nights, Don Quixote, and other tales allowed to him to pass the time. At last, after 200 failures, he finished a 5-inch reflector, and on March 4th, 1774, he observed the Orion Nebula. No sooner had Herschel commenced his celestial explorations than he resolved to survey the entire heavens, leaving no spot unvisited. In 1775, he commenced his review of the heavens but finding his telescope inadequate, he began the work of telescope-making afresh. Meanwhile, he had much to distract him from astronomy. In 1776, he became director of the public concerts at Bath, yet his enthusiasm was unbounded. He would run to his house between the acts at the theatre to observe the heavens. In 1779, 
when observing the moon from the street in front of his house, a gentleman asked permission to see the celestial wonders, a request which Herschel granted. The gentleman, Dr. Watson at Bath, introduced Herschel to the Literary Society, and we can find him in 1780, contributing two papers to the Royal Society of Miraceti of the Moon. In the same year, he commenced his second review of the heavens, and during its progress, he made his first great discovery. On March 13, 1781, while surveying the constellation Gemini, he discovered a faint object distinguished by a disk, which he concluded to be a tailless comet, but which was soon shown to be a new planet beyond the orbit of Saturn. This was the first planetary discovery made within the memory of man. King George III summoned Herschel to London and gave him a pension of £200 a year, with the title of King's Astronomer, pardoning him also for his desertion from the army more than 20 years previously. Herschel then named the new planet Georgium Cetus, a title now abandoned and replaced by Uranus. William and Caroline Herschel now moved to Datchet near Windsor in 1785 to Clay Hall and finally in 1786 to Slough. The spot of all the world, said Arago, where the greatest number of discoveries have been made. Here Herschel and his sister worked for nearly 40 years. He communicated to the Royal Society, paper after paper, on astronomy in all aspects. He also continued the work of telescope making and constructed in 1789 his 40-foot reflector, the wonder of the age. In 1787, his sister was appointed his assistant and together the Herschels worked from dusk to dawn. Caroline Herschel herself detected the eight comets and numerous nebulae. She relates in her memoirs that on one occasion, while she was acting as assistant, the ink froze in her pen. But such inconveniences mattered not to the Herschels. As Miss Clark has well remarked, every serene dark night was to him a precious opportunity, availed of to the last minute. The thermometer might descend below zero, ink might freeze, mirrors might crack, 
but provided the stars shone. He and his sister worked on from dusk to dawn. On one occasion, he is said to have worked without intermission at the telescope and the desk for 72 hours. Honours were showered on Herschel. He was knighted in 1816 and became president of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1820. Besides receiving several honorary degrees, but honours in no way elated him. Advancing years in no way affected his wonderful mind, but his duties as king's astronomer necessitated his acting as showman of the heavens on the visits of royalties to Windsor. Often after a whole day's work, when rest was absolutely necessary. This tremendous strain, which reflects little credit on the court, proved too much for the old man. His health began to give way, although his mind was as vigorous as ever. Herschel contributed his last paper to the Royal Society in 1818, and three years later sent a list of double stars to the new Astronomical Society. He made his last observation on June 1st, 1821. His strength had now left him, and to this he could not reconcile himself. As Miss Clark puts it, all his old instincts were still alive, only the bodily power to carry out their behests was gone. An unparalleled career of achievement left him unsatisfied with what he had done. His strong nerves were at last shattered. After a prolonged period of failed health, he died at Slough at the age of 83 on August 25, 1822. On September 7, he was buried in the churchyard of St. Lawrence at Upton. On his tombstone are engraved the words, Salorum Parapet Claustra. He broke through the barriers of the skies. The death of her brother was a terrible blow to Caroline Herschel. Expecting to live only a twelve-month, she returned to Hanover to the home of her brother, Dietrich Herschel. But she lived twenty-five years among people who cared nothing for astronomy. She was delighted at Sir John Herschel's continuation of his father's work. She compiled a catalogue of all the clusters and nebulae observed by her brother, for which she received the gold medal of the Astronomical Society 
and she was created an honorary member. In 1846, she received from the King of Prussia the Gold Medal of Science, but no honours made her in any way elated. She always held that whoever said much of her said too little of her brother. After a prolonged decline of health, she died on January 9, 1848, aged 97 years, and was buried beside her father in the churchyard of Hanover, leaving behind her a noble example of self-sacrifice and devotion. One result of Herschel's discoveries among the stars and nebulae is that his studies of the sun and planets, with the exception of the discovery of Uranus, have been completely thrown into the shade. Nevertheless, his work in solar and planetary astronomy alone would have gained for him a higher position in astronomy than his contemporaries. The planets, satellites and comets were all attentively studied by the great astronomer. Indeed, the scientific investigation of the surfaces of Mars and Saturn began with Herschel. His attention to the sun, Miss Clark truly remarks, might have been exclusive, so diligent was his scrutiny of its shiny surface. Sunspots were specially investigated by Herschel, who closely studied their peculiarities, regarding them as depressions in the solar atmosphere. He also paid much attention to the faculae, but could not observe them to the north and south of the sun, thus proving their connection with the spots which are confined to the regions north and south of the equator. There is all over the sun a great unevenness, said Herschel, which has the appearance of a mixture of small points of an unequal light, but they are evidently a roughness of high and low parts. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you enjoyed that, and I also hope that you're feeling a little drowsy. I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Until then, good night.